Amen. Thank you all. Thank you, Nicole and Ruth, and thank all of you for our time of worship tonight. Exodus 25, tonight we begin an amazing part of Scripture. We begin looking at the tabernacle. It is the focal point of the nation of Israel, both literally and physically, as well as figuratively and spiritually. When God reveals things in his word, the things that he gives the most ink to are what is of greatest value to him. So I want you to keep that in mind with what I'm about to say. In the book of Exodus, 40 chapters, only two chapters out of 40 are devoted to the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Only two. Only half a chapter is devoted to the Ten Commandments, the thing that most people think of when they think of Exodus. Thirteen chapters are devoted to the tabernacle. One-third of the book is devoted to the tabernacle. That's how big of a deal God thought the tabernacle was. Why is that? Well, first of all, the tabernacle brought three dynamics, if you will, into the worshiping community of Israel. It gave order to the worship of God. It gave order to the worship of God. And we're going to talk more about that in the next 12, 13 weeks. Secondly, it provided a tangible sense of God's presence. Okay? A tangible sense. God's there. And third, it provided a place of stability and cohesion and refuge for the people of God. Just as sort of we look at our church today. It's a place where we come together, a place of refuge, a place of stability. That's what the tabernacle was to the people of God. And why did God emphasize the tabernacle so much I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I want you to note these two phrases because if you underline anything in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline these two phrases. This is what matters most to God about the purpose of the tabernacle. The end of verse 8, beginning with the word so, which is always usually telling us of a purpose of God. So that I may live among them. Don't miss that. So that I may live among them. And then if you go down to verse 22, notice I will meet with you there. I will meet with you there. This is why the tabernacle meant so much to God. Because it was the sacred space where again, the transcendent God of the universe 
said, this is the place where I want to meet with my people. And therefore, God wanted his people to value that space as well because it was where they met and experienced the presence of God. I think about that in relationship to us. This building is our tabernacle. This is where God has designated, I want to meet with my people here, here. And God values this space, not the building, but the fact that his presence dwells here amongst us and meets with us here and moves amongst us here. And therefore, he wants us to value this space. Again, not for the space itself, but for the fact that this is where God is. It wouldn't mean a thing if God's presence wasn't here. But because God's presence does dwell here, and because he meets with us here, this is why we should value this space. The tabernacle. But before God gave the design and plans for the tabernacle, notice what God asked of his people first. The Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 25, verse 1. Tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because this offering is going to be to build the tabernacle, to build the house of God and to maintain it and to furnish it. And yet God says, take up an offering, not for the tabernacle, for me. Because you can't separate the two from God's perspective. Where I dwell and where I meet with my people, that's me. Think about that. Boy, that, that has a lot of ramifications and applications for us today, even in the New Testament age of the church and how we should view the local church. Take up an offering for me from every person motivated by a willing heart. You are to receive my offering. And then the rest of verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 tell us what that offering should consist of. Now, a couple things. These are slaves. Where are they getting all this? Well, they brought this out of Egypt. This is part of the plunder that they got when they left Egypt. It's also part of the plunder that they got when they defeated the Amalekites. God had blessed his people exceedingly, and now God is asking for them to bring offerings of some of these things to him so that they can build a place of worship where he can meet with them. And notice God says to Moses, I want only the offerings that will come from willing hearts. I don't want anything from any one of my people that they don't want to give. If they're just giving it out of duty, out of obligation, and all of that, I don't want it. Willing heart. Think about that again in relationship to us. I don't talk much about this, obviously, 
But God expects us to support our sacred space and to bring in the offerings so that this space can do the business of God. And so we can continue to see God meet with us here and work. But God only wants offerings from those that have willing hearts. The hearts that the grace of God is moving and working upon. That's why, again, I'm totally opposed to pastors getting up and cajoling their people and putting them on a guilt trip and trying to manipulate them into giving. That's not biblical. God will move upon his people and his people will give willingly when they are aligned with God. And this principle here is so important to God. Keep your finger in chapter 25 and go over to chapter 35 and you will see this very same thing repeated in chapter 35, verses 4 through 9. And I'm going to read that part. It's, it's exactly the same as back in 25, but I didn't read all the things that they were to bring. So in Exodus 35, verse 4, Moses spoke to the whole community of the Israelites. This is the word that the Lord has commanded Take an offering for the Lord. Let everyone who has a willing heart bring an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, fine leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and other gems for mounting on the ephod and the breastpiece. We're going to talk about all those elements, but you notice in all of those, first of all, beauty you notice the best, <laughs> you know? Fine linen, gold, silver. That's what God expected of his people for his sacred. Not that God needs it. God doesn't need anything. But God wants his people to bring their best to his sacred space because he wants them to value that space because there's maybe no more important space in their world than where God meets with his people. Back to chapter 25. Then come down to verse 8. Let them make for me a sanctuary, a sacred space. Now notice though something. God instructed Moses to ask for the contributions before he gave them the plans. Why? Because if their heart isn't in it and they really aren't willing to contribute, then God's not going to build it. God's not going to give them the plans to build it. He wants to see, does, they, does he have their heart first? And guess what he's asking to, to see where their heart is? Their stuff. Because <laughs> where your treasure is, there's where your heart is. So God's going to tap their pocketbook and say, am I more important than that stuff? Are you willing to open your hands and be generous? And get, because God is wanting to remind his people, it's all mine anyway, and you wouldn't have it unless I blessed you with it. So are you understanding the source of where it all came from anyway, and you're just giving back to me what I've already given to you? And by the way, it was a portion. 
They were going to have plenty left over for them to live off of. But God was seeing, are you willing to contribute to this sacred space before I ever give you the plans? God does the same thing today with us. He wants to see, first of all, where our heart is before he leads us and gives us direction. See, we want direction first. God, you show me your plan, and then I'll figure out whether I'm on board or not. No, God is like, I want to see, are you on board with me? And if you are truly on board with me, I'll give you clarity. I'll give you guidance. I'll give you leadership. I'll give you direction. And what's the purpose? What was the main purpose for all of this? Verse 8, so that I may live among them. My goodness, this is craziness. No people had ever had a God say, I want to come down and live with you. I, I want to tabernacle with you. I want to I put my residence right there with you all. Gods were like, they were way distant. There was no way you could bridge the chasm between human people and, and a God, but not our God. He said, no, no, I, I want to come and I want to be right there. In fact, this principle of God tabernacling or, or taking up residence with his people is something you see throughout Scripture. What does the Bible again say in John 1:14? The word became flesh and took up residence amongst us, tabernacled, settled down, dwelt. That was the coming of Christ. And then you go all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 3. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, John says. And then he says, look, the residence of God is with human beings. He wants to dwell with them for all of eternity, and they will be his people. This is always the purpose of God. Always the purpose of God. Not just to save us and deliver us as he did the uh, Israelites out of Egypt, but then to live with his people and dwell with them. Verse 9. I want to live among them according to all that I am showing you, the pattern, the plan, the blueprint of the tabernacle and the pattern, the plan, the blueprint of all of its furnishings. And don't miss the last phrase. He tells Moses, you must make it what? Exactly so. God is a God of precision, exactness. Moses couldn't go, you know, God, that curtain that you want to be 42 inches long, I think I want to make it 41. No. We're going to see there was a purpose for why God said the curtains have to be 42 inches, not 40, not 43, but 42. God doesn't waste his words. And everything that God told Moses about this tabernacle, how it was to be constructed, how big it was to be, all the furnishings in it, and down to the last detail of it, all had a purpose. There is nothing purposeless with God. And one of the things I want to say here as we begin to study the tabernacle is this general purpose. One of the things then that you and I learn is that the smallest thing can bring glory to God. The smallest thing can bring glory to God. That's one of the things that 
concepts that God wanted his people to see as they began to see what the design of the tabernacle was and as they began to build it. In verse 10, we start with the most sacred of all the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, humanly, most people wouldn't start there. You know, you, you would start with the, the outer, the, the construction, the exterior, and work your way in. God does just the opposite. He starts at the very center of what's at the tabernacle and works his way out because what's at the very center is what is most important. And it's sort of similar then to us, right? God's like, don't worry about your exterior so much. Worry about the interior because that's where I dwell with you. That should be the priority. That should be the most important thing. Here's another reason why, you know, when I said earlier about the tabernacle that whatever God puts the most ink to is most significant to God. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 180 times in the Old Testament. 180 times. And it had transcendent significance. I mean, we're not going to go into all of this right now, but you will see that it was an ark that was made by casting gold. And yet in verse 13 and 14 too, God made sure that no one ever touched the ark. It had poles that it would be carried because we know even in scripture that people that did dare touch the ark, they died because this represented the holy presence of God, and it was not to be trifled with. That's why in verse 15 it says, the poles that are in that ark, they must never be removed. And then you are to put into the ark the testimony that I will give to you, the two stone tablets written by the finger of God, Exodus 31, 18. So the ark was to serve as a depository of the ten commandments a testimony of israel's relationship and responsibility to god that's why it's called the ark of the testimony as part of the ark verse 17 you are to make an atonement lid of pure gold its length is to be three feet nine inches its width is to be two feet three inches now in the first century they began to adopt a phrase to describe the atonement lid, and we know this a little bit better than we do the atonement lid. You probably know this as the mercy seat. You've probably heard that more than you have the atonement lid. This atonement lid literally means to cover. It was a covering for sin, and very interestingly, in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 25, listen to the words of Paul. Paul says, God the Father displayed the death of Jesus publicly, and he became the mercy seat. You see, every one of these pieces of furniture, you're going to see literally point to Jesus Christ. 
It is a foreshadowing of Jesus, of his work, of his life, and of his ministry. God does everything purposefully, or not purposelessly, with purpose, with purpose. The central meaning of human existence is all about having a relationship with God. And the Ark of the Covenant is this great symbol that makes that viable. It it brings God near to human beings. Jesus does the same thing. Obviously, we're going to talk later about the, the cherubim that cover it and all the details of it, but not tonight. I want to just touch on a few other things in our time we have left because we'll get back. There's a lot of repetition in the next 13, 14 chapters. But again, God does that for a reason. But I want you to notice verse 21. You are to put the atonement lid or the mercy seat on top of the ark and then in the ark you are to put the Ten Commandments. What does that show us? Mercy covers law. The mercy of God seen on the mercy seat covers the law of God because God knew I'm giving you the law, not that I think you can keep it, but to show you you can't. And that the only way you can come to me is by mercy, by grace. So the mercy seat sits above the law. And then verse 22, I will meet with you there. That's where I'll engage with you. See, again, order. God said, that's the place I will meet with my people. So I want you there. Same thing today. Again, it's not that you and I can't relate to God personally anywhere and everywhere, but God has designated this is the space where corporately, as a community of believers, this is where we meet him. And that's why he holds it sacred and why he wants us to hold this place sacred. I will meet with you there and from above the atonement lid, from between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will command you for the Israelites. That's where I'll meet you, and that's where I'll speak to you. What an amazing revelation. But again, keep this in mind with what I said before our worship. All that God was doing and even revealing all of this, it took his humility and his condescension to bring it all about. God is so far above human mind and and conception. He has to bring everything down to a level that we can relate to, that we can understand, that we can grasp, that we can comprehend because he's beyond us. So every time he even relates to us and illuminates us and reveals things to us, he's actually humbling himself and condescending to our level. Two other things tonight. You will notice beginning in verse 23 that God begins to give Moses the design of this table 
This table that basically was a display for the bread of presence. You see that phrase in verse 30. That's where they are to set the bread of presence because God is ever present with his people. And also, the bread is symbolic of three things in the Bible. Fellowship, that's why God places value on meals and eating with people. We saw that Sunday. God values that. It's not to be something that's rushed through and you just, we fill ourselves up. And No, it was a place where there was fellowship there. It's also symbolic of provision, the provision of God. But it's also symbolic of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Pointing to Jesus again, just like the mercy seat. Jesus, Romans 3.25, is the mercy seat of God, and he's also the bread of God. And even Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He provides our physical needs. He also provides our spiritual need. And the bread of presence was a reminder daily to the Israelites that God would provide for their every need, that they could have fellowship with their God, and that he was their bread. He was their bread. And then the lampstand, verse 31, through the rest of the chapter. Now, the lampstand had a practical purpose, not just a spiritual purpose. The inner tabernacle was a dark, shrouded, windowless place. So the lampstand provided enough light for the priests to be able to do what they did without bumping into stuff and knocking stuff over. So there was a practical purpose for the lampstand. But again, like with the bread of presence, it was also symbolic. It was symbolic of the illumination that the presence of God would give to his people. Because the presence of God always brings illumination. And the lampstand had typical significance in that, again, it pointed to Jesus who claimed to be what? I am the light of the world. Light of the world. So in this very first chapter even, beginning to talk about the tabernacle, and we've got 13 more chapters to go. Look at what we're already seeing about Jesus in the tabernacle and in the furniture and furnishings of the tabernacle. Amazing. By the way, this lampstand, did you see in verse 31, God said you are to make a lampstand of pure gold. Then go over to verse 39. 75 pounds of pure gold. That thing had to be gorgeous. And notice something else here that we could miss if we don't, you know, take our time. In verse 31, God wanted this lampstand to be built from one piece of gold. Did you see that? The same piece. Now, folks, that takes skill. That, that, and we're going to see, God was going to call upon skillful artisans to make the stuff that went into the tabernacle. That took some talent and skill. Again, God would give it, 
But that took a talented, skillful person to be able to make this lampstand out of one piece of solid gold. And it would also take a long time to make it. And God was okay with that because God didn't want anything to be rushed. It was for his house. So do your best and take your time. You'll also notice that the lampstand has these branches and these almond blossoms and all of this and almond flowers on it because God was saying that, that the, my presence and my light will bring fruitfulness to the nation. Even in verse 38, its trimmers and its trays are to be of pure gold. And then verse 40. Once again, God repeats this instruction to Moses. Now be sure to make them according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. God is strongly making the point clear that Moses was to construct the tabernacle and the furniture exactly as he had been shown. God is basically saying, follow my plan, follow my blueprint exactly. Do not deviate from it at all. Now, a couple things. One, that tells us that Moses and the rest of the Israelites didn't have to go through guesswork to figure it out. You know, they didn't have to try to come up with their own design or blueprint. God was going to give it to them. But God did say, I'm giving you every detail of this, from the, the, the kind of nails and hooks and everything that I want, even bringing everything together. I'll give you it all, but you got to follow it exactly. Can I exhort all of us tonight? That same principle still holds true for us. God doesn't expect us to come up with the plan. It's his plan. All God asks of us is, you make sure that you're following my plan exactly. Do not put your own spin on it. If God said, I want that particular piece of, of say, curtain or furnishing to be blue then it better be blue there better not be somebody well i think it would look better in red no blue if god said blue then it needs to be blue by the way can i just tell you god put a lot of blue in the tabernacle what's the oasis's color blue because an oasis is water it's blue it's always been blue i don't know i just threw that in makes me feel good Here's what I want to end with. Like a lot of times, especially in the, in the Old Testament, we can struggle through chapters that we're going to get into here in, in Exodus because of all the minutia. It, it just seems like sometimes it's like all the details that God is giving seem so over the top. But it wouldn't seem that way if we realize that from God's perspective, it's no small thing to draw near to me. And that's what the tabernacle represented. The tabernacle represented the place where God's people could draw near to him. So there's nothing 
small about any detail about what we're going to look at. Nothing that's like, oh, no. It's about the place where God said, I will live among them and I will meet them there. Remember something else about the tabernacle. The tabernacle, God was going to give them a design for it that it could be sturdy and withstand weather and things like that, but where it also was portable. Remember, this thing traveled around with the Israelites for 40 years because God was always going to be with his people and always going to be providing a place even as they wandered for them to meet with him. So they had to set it up, stay there until God told them to move. Then they had to tear it all down, pack it away, move it to another location and set it back up for 40 years. An amazing, there's never been anything like the tabernacle, never. And there never will be anything like the tabernacle. So I hope that you'll come back next week and keep coming because I think that we've got a lot of stuff to discover that can truly be inspiring for our own walk with God in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you have given us a sacred space to meet with you. God, may we never take this place for granted, not because it's a nice building, not because it's furnished well and all of that. We, we're thankful for all of that. But God, by far, the best place about this place that we call the Oasis Church is it's a place where you are, where you dwell, where you have designated you will meet with us here on a regular basis. That's what makes this place special. And that's the only thing that really makes this place special. Without you, there's no reason for this space. So God, may we value it as you do. And God, may we, as we learn about the tabernacle, Realize that we are learning a lot about our God, about his nature, about how he does things, how he works, how he operates, because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And much of what we will glean from the book of Exodus, we can apply to our own walk with you today. Because Lord, more than anything else, you want to live amongst us. In fact, you wanted that so bad that you actually live within us. We are now the tabernacle of God. We are the dwelling place for you through your spirit. That's amazing, God, that our human bodies are your tabernacle. May that continually, Lord, bring about wonder and awe in our lives. Thank you, God, for such a precious and powerful time of worship tonight. And thank you, God, for your word that you give to us that we can just 
live from and get life from and nourishment from. Thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you do for us. And the very fact, God, that in order for us to even engage with you, you have to humble yourself. Thank you, God, for humbling yourself for us. May we live humbly before you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.